Hello and welcome back to the afternoon session of Government 24. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Joe Owen, Director of Impact at the Institute. And today, the 23rd of January, is pretty much exactly a year until the last possible moment that the next UK general election could be. The Prime Minister has, though, said we won't have to wait that long, fortunately. Rishi Sunak has said his assumption is we'll have an election in the second half of this year. The bookies' odds point to a vote in the autumn, and the polls, at least as they stand now, put Labour on the brink of taking power after 14 years in opposition. But, and I realise this is probably the least original thing you'll hear from this platform today, lots can change very quickly in UK politics. So, with the countdown to the election well and truly on, the panel here is going to chew over what we might expect from the next 12 months. What should the parties be doing to prepare for an election and governing after it? How credible are the platforms that have been put forward so far? And what are the big moments this year that might determine the result? Joining me to answer those questions and many more is a properly brilliant panel. Furthest to my right, Giles Wilkes, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government. Immediately to my right, Anita Boateng, Partland at partner at Portland Communications and former special advisor at the Cabinet Office, MOJ and DWP. On the centre-left, Claire Ainsley, director of the project Centre-Left Renewal and former executive director of policy to Keir Starmer. And last but by no means least, Sam Friedman, also a senior fellow, senior fellow here at the Institute for Government. I'm going to start by asking them some questions before opening up to the floor. I'm going to leave lots of time for questions, so please do store them up. If you're watching online and have a question, please do use the Q&A function. And if you don't have a question but more of a comment, then why not tweet it with the hashtag IFGGov24. Anita, I'm going to start with you. Um, Sunak has probably got nine months left in number 10 before a general election. What does he need to do to improve his chances of winning and what should his priorities be? I think it's a very good question and one that I'm sure everyone in number 10 is thinking about daily. Um, I think there's two things that really matter. So when we come up to elections, people say, well, the polls narrow. That's not inevitable, but I think voters start answering a different question when they think about when they get into election mode versus now. So right now, if you ask a voter, what do you think? They tend to make a referendum on the existing government. When you get closer to election, they tend to look forward and they're thinking about what do I want? What can be resolved? And I think what Rishi Sunak needs to do is to decide what the question is that voters should be engaging with at that general election. Um, and we've got examples of where that has been very kind of explicit, you know, 2019, if you want Brexit done, that's what this election is. But also in 2015, where the outcome really wasn't inevitable, but David Cameron, with a very clear and singular message, created a sense of there is a coalition of chaos, which obviously has been much mocked on social media, or there is stability and a long-term economic plan. And that was the defining frame of that general election. And I think that Rishi Sunak needs to create a single message, decide, first of all, who is in charge of that message, and to repeat it a lot, because Sunak has a lot of strengths, but if we look back on the past year, there has been a move through various different iterations of different messages that he has been trying out. He needs to pick one, he needs to stick with it, and he needs to repeat it. There's one other thing I want to say, if you'll allow. I think that Rishi Sunak has actually shown 
a great amount of political courage over the past year, which I know may be controversial in the room. If you look at things like the Windsor framework, if you look at the fact that he you know, sacked Suella Braverman and brought in David Cameron, um, if you look at what he did with climate change, like there have been those moments. And I think that you, you get power by realizing you have it. And Rishi Sunak is in charge. And there is something about creating further definition of himself by being able to contrast it with perhaps Truss, perhaps Johnson. He needs to be able to define himself and engage in some of the reasons why the polls are where they are. And, and what that means, really, is that he needs to be able to say what he stands for. And that can be done through policy, of course it can, but politics is a lot about personalities. And I think for him, if he's able to say to himself and say to the public, by the way, I'm not Johnson, I'm not Trust, and here is what they got wrong and why I'm doing things differently, I think that would create further definition for Sunak that would really help him in an election. And the dynamic that's obviously meant that's not possible is the parliamentary party, of course. But I think that they would really respond to that definition. And people say that if you have a divided party, you can never, ever prosper. I think it depends on the kind of row you pick. And I think through some of them, you can create a sense in the nation that you are really in charge and build a sense of leadership. Obviously, we saw this with Blair in uh, 1997, but also with Johnson in 2019. And I think for the year, the lesson for Sunak and the opportunity for Sunak is both in framing that election and in deciding how he paints the past couple of years, how he can create a greater sense of identity, which I think would make a great deal of difference in the run up to an election. Thank you, Anita. I'm going to come to you, Claire, next and ask you a sort of similar question on how Starmer and the Labour Party need to use the next nine months. What, what do you think their focus should be and what are the, the big risks and opportunities that you see? So I think Labour have decided what they want that election question to be. Um, are you better off with the Conservatives after 13 years, or will it be 14 years? Um, and you will be better off with Labour. So I think their focus has to be on how people will be better off, because as we've talked to, uh, about this morning, the kind of the choices confronting any government are, um, are pretty brutal. So I think they've decided what they want the terrain in. I mean, there is a, there's a also a question, Anita and I, like politicians and strategists decide what the question is. That's what people are asking themselves. So it's pretty sensible mm. for the Labour team to say, go where people are already at, which is, do I feel better off? Will I be better off? Can I trust them? Those are the sorts of kind of big questions. So really every day that the government or the Tories are not on the economy and on people's personal finances, to me, is a, is a day wasted towards the goals that Anita's just, uh, just outlined. So I think Labour's challenge is really on the, well, how would I be better off? So I don't feel better off than I was 13, 14 years ago in, in most people's circumstances. Um, and, and most of what we can see Sunak and Hunt trying to do is to translate what they were hoping was going to be better economic performance data into people's uh, lived experience and uh, for people to trust that giving them another chance will improve their finances. There's, as you can tell, some fairly big ifs and buts in that. Whether that means you automatically convert to uh, Labour, Labour are absolutely not taking for granted. So the political focus for Labour will be on the high numbers of people who say they don't know how they're going to vote. 
So um, although obviously we have headline polls, which seems to come out about six times a day saying broadly the same thing, um, what you will also notice is that a lot of those polls are showing people who are basically saying that they won't vote or that they don't know how they're going to vote. And obviously the Tory strategy is to convert as many of those people back to the Conservatives, most of them voted Conservatives in 2019. Labour are not taking their eye off that group of voters at all. They are not thinking, we've just got to deliver what the headline polling is. They know they have got to go for people who probably voted Conservative in 2019, probably voted Conservative for several elections before that, but are not yet saying that they feel uh, confident to vote Labour. And that's partly about uh, the economy and being able to trust Labour more. We know that that's, that's an issue. But it's also that sense of, do they stand for me? So I think, I think Labour have to uh, excite people in a way to, to motivate them to vote because so many people just feel fed up over the last few years of what they've seen go on. And that's not just a sort of party political point. It's a, you know, the years of turbulence that we've had. There's a connection that people have to make. And I think that that can come. I think we can feel that lift in the country that we need to. But that's what Labour will be hoping that they can do as we near towards election polling day. Giles, um, Claire's mentioned it, but, but both the parties are claiming to be the party of growth. Yeah. Uh, we've got the prospect of two fiscal events before the election and almost certainly endless talks of tax cuts. Are, are either party's <laughs> plans for growth in the economy convincing? And what are you and what should we collectively be looking out for to sort of establish what a convincing plan on growth looks like? Can anyone in the room guess what the Institute for Government thinks about two fiscal events a year <laughs> as a way of spreading certainty? Or indeed uh, announcing tax cut after tax cut to try and get the last one pound of headroom out of the door before a likely election. Um, I don't think that is the right way for growth. So let me think. First, just reflecting on the, on, on the problem as, as was expressed in the previous two uh, answers, there isn't really very much precedent for a party recovering as far as it needs to, to get back into a competitive position by the time of the likely next election. The only time I've ever seen the polls move that fast was during the 2017 general election where there seemed to be a massive swathe of sympathy votes for Corbyn. It, it's very hard to see it actually happening. If you just looked at the raw numbers and didn't even know what the numbers meant, you would say they don't normally move that much. Um, number two, it's very, very hard to move the economy to such a degree that the voters suddenly change their minds about whether you've done well or not. Because the last 14 years have been really poor. The last 14 years have been, the last few years have been extremely poor for living standards and most of the evidence is in that people hate poor living standards and inflation far more than they hate unemployment and that's extremely hard to get rid of that impression very, very quickly. In fact, I think the data suggests it's about a two-year lag. So the inflation needs to be at least two years into the rearview mirror before people start saying things are getting a little bit better. Three, I mean... We're, we are also a, we're, we're an economy that's been hit by a phenomenal supply shock. Insofar as this government might consider itself unlucky, the supply shock that hit us when energy bills shot up in um, 2022 was incredible. And you, we'll be able to see it for decades to come in terms of all those graphs that the IFS and others produce on cost of living and so forth. But that, but that is still the most important fact. Whenever we've had a cost of living shock like that, the government gets pitched out next. So it's very difficult to imagine however much time you might spend with Rishi Sunak and Downing Street coming up with an idea. There's an idea that will finally produce the sort of feel-good feeling that was there sort of in 2015 and certainly was there at other times like 1992. You know, the sense that we have got some green shoots and we don't better not disturb it because things might go down again. So my honest answer is I don't think there is an economic plan that the government can prepare right now that will make people feel good enough 
that they will get the sort of 10-point bounce they need in the polls to get themselves into a competitive position. As for the credibility of other plans, I mean, growth, there, there are huge tomes on growth. If there were to be any particular theme, all the governments all the potential governments and parties out there should be focusing on one or two really big themes and they would be, for me, investment, where I'd say to give the Chancellor credit, he's made a reasonably good start with this full expensing idea, but uh, has also got some bad elements of his programme, such as the cuts to future capital spending, which he's allowed to happen passively through inflation, but also the rhetoric he's hurling at Labour for Labour's capital spending on future green transition work, I think is the wrong message. We do need more investment in this economy. Whenever you open the FT and see something failing, the thing that is failing is something to do with the public estate or something to do with public goods that have been underinvested in. I think there's a figure out there somewhere that the accumulated underinvestment in this economy for the last 20, 30 years is something like half a trillion pounds. We need to be fixing that, and that won't happen easily. It won't happen if you promise tax cuts that you can't afford in the medium term. It won't happen if you tell people, we agree the utilities are failing, but we don't agree that the bills should go up. There need to be some tough messages to the public if we want to get growth going. I think the number one thing that both parties can do right now is to make it clear that to achieve growth right now, there's a kind of Venn diagram. Things can be either easy, good, or obvious, but never all three. And the things that they're not going to be is easy. If you want, and this is a great message that the Resolution Foundation's Ending Stagnation Report kept hammering home. If you want more investment, that means lower consumption. It means that cost of living might feel like it hasn't lifted up for a while. So I would say the parties need to be pro-investment. They need to be honest about the costs of it. And I would say marginally, the Labour Party is closer to acknowledging that, although neither of them are being fully frank about it. Um, Sam, I'm going to come to you for a similar question on public services, because how couldn't we after this morning? Um, how convincing are the plans from the parties on public services, particularly in the context of what some of Giles has just mentioned and the, the public spending commitments? How credible are the plans? Uh, well, only semi-facetiously, my answer would be what plans? Um, yeah, I think if you look at the uh, Conservative Party and the government, to the extent they've really done anything on public services, uh, uh, in terms of announcing something, it hasn't happened. So we had a social, social care uh, package that hasn't happened. We had a schools bill that hasn't happened. We've had childcare reform proposed that is not happening uh, and is turning into a bit of a, of a mess. Uh, so, so anything that was kind of forward-looking isn't happening. On the Labour side, you've got... They do, you know, when people say they don't have any policy, they do have policy, uh, but it's, it's micro-policy on the whole when it comes to public services. It's small things. Some of those small things are good ideas and, and should, be, should be happening. Um, uh, free breakfast for primary school children and so on. Nothing, nothing wrong with that as an, as an idea. It already happens in a lot of primary schools, but, but, but they're micro, and they're micro because they have to be free or very cheap. Uh, which takes us to the, to the sort of core problem and why we haven't got any kind of really sort of big forward-looking reform plans on the public services because they would all cost money and we've yet again <coughs> find ourselves in an absolute kind of bizarro land discussion about tax and spending in the year before an election. And, and it might be that I feel this particularly strongly because I you know, spend most of my time writing about policy but then I also write about politics. And when I'm writing about policy, you know, I'm, I'm, talk, I'm writing about record waiting lists, record A&E times, hundreds of thousands of homeless families, dozens of councils going bankrupt down the street at the moment, sort of trying to plead with the government for more money, a million children destitute, prisons completely full, court backlogs. And then you get to the political discussion and it's how much money should we borrow for tax cuts? It's completely insane. You know, there's, no, there's never been a bigger 
<coughs> disconnect between the reality of what the public sector and all the public that use those, those services are facing and the debate that we're having. And that debate is driven by, uh, by, by the government and conservative-friendly media, but it is one that I think nearly everyone is acquiescing in that framing of the debate. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about fiscal rules and the importance of sticking to fiscal rules without anyone actually explaining what they are or you know, why it's so important to stick to them or what they do. Um, and uh, uh, and there's sort of an assumption that we're gonna, that this sort of plans for 1% spending after the election for every year up to 2029 are remotely plausible. And we know from the last two times this government did a spending review, they ended up spending 35 billion more than they had said they were going to spend the year before. And that's gonna happen again, whoever wins the election, but because they're not, no one's saying it yet, we can't have a discussion about how that money's gonna be spent. So when it does arrive, we're gonna spend it worse as a result. So as you can see, I'm quite annoyed. Yep, good. Um, <laughs> well, I wanna to come to Anita and Claire on this point, because elections aren't just about sort of setting the strategic question, but also getting a mandate to do things. And do you think, I'll come to you, Anita, first. Do you think there's areas where the Conservatives and Labour should be doing more to try and get a mandate for the difficult decisions that are coming? Is there a need this year at some point for some hard truths about what the next five years might have in store? I mean, of course, not just for the sake of governing, but for the sake of the health of our politics. I feel like there's two elements that have really crept into um, politics in the past, I would say, four or five years. One is cakeism, the idea that you can just have cake, eat it. There are no difficult choices to be made about anything, whether it's climate change. I don't, there's no issue upon which we are not engaging and indulging in that. And I think it's made politics so much worse. Even if we take a tangible issue like growth, the idea that planning reform is a, easy to do, and B, is the thing that is cheap and free and is just going to unlock endless bounties of growth, just isn't engaging in what it's like. I mean, I say this, I have a bugbear, I've been a local councillor, talk to local people about planning, and you know that regardless of political party, it is not easy to deliver effective planning reform. And the other, which I think is much more of a labour problem, I would say, is that there is the idea that you just sort of have to be competent that we're just going to be more competent than the Conservatives and suddenly things are going to be easy. There are real political choices to be made on issues like take immigration, any issue you like. The, the notion that if just like we're just going to slightly reform or we're going to have a grip, the idea that they're in government, it's not messy and it's not difficult and you don't have to make compromises, I think makes politics poorer and also makes governing more difficult. So when and how do you think we break out of that cycle? Do you, are you optimistic that we will this year or do you think that we're just not going to get there? I think in, in a world in which there is a challenge to present a lot of hope to the electorate, I think we're even more mired in that cycle of and the Labour Party kind of standing there absolutely paralysed, not wanting to say anything that would indicate that there are going to be any risks associated with governing. And Rishi Sunak looking at the reality of where he's gotten to and how difficult it's going to be to dig the country out of the challenges that it faces, there's even more reason to focus on the ephemeral on the, on the distracting political debate and not on some of those tough choices. So I'm a bit pessimistic, sorry. Claire, I'm going to let you come in on this too. Uh, do you think there's more that Starmer should do to break cover on the difficult things that are coming down the track? Um, I mean, I do think parties need, I agree with Anita, you, know, you need a mandate to be able to go in with. And, and for me, that's, that's as much about the overall stance. And that's partly what Labour's challenge is, is, is how do you take a stance that resonates with where the public are at because actually if you if you look at where the public are at on some of these issues 
they, they do think taxes on the whole are too high. Uh, they have no tolerance, but actually never did have much tolerance for public spending cuts. So um, the cakeism, I, I agree, happens, but I also think that that public conversation that involves the public too is part of it, because I think in a sense, it's easy for us to say politicians are not levelling with the public, but I, I also think that is true of leaders in other parts of um, our, our public life. So uh, I think in civil society, I think in industry, I think I would like there to see the, a bigger appetite for that. And I, and I must say, I'm also a trustee of Involved the Public Participation Organisation. And I think we have to start doing more of that breaking cover with the public involved. Because actually, when you put some of those trade-offs to the public, they get some of the reality of it. Um, and, and if you take immigration, for example, actually, there needs to be a serious conversation about the level of immigration that we might be expecting to the country, which is going to outstrip what we've seen before. I don't accept that I think that the Tories have a serious plan on it. And I think anyone who looks over the last few weeks would find that to, uh, are hard to defend. I would like there to be more outside of politics, uh, uh, more, more leadership, more public leadership on some of those issues, as well as in the parties. On Labour, I, I would say I think that Starmer and Rachel Reeves have been really brave because the easiest thing to do for a Labour opposition coming in with a, with, a, with a Conservative government growing in unpopularity would have been to dole out lots of spending promises that would have kept a stakeholder base happy, would have had lots of organisations cheering them along to say what they were going to spend on health. And what they have done is they have taken a much more difficult political path, and that has been to hold the line on public spending because they know they're going to need room for manoeuvre. Uh, and it has, it has created this, this impression that Labour haven't got policies or there isn't, a, you know, there isn't a detail out there or not standing for anything. Actually, if you look at what Labour have said on health, they've said an awful lot on health. You take the big mental health pledge, for example, which is indicative of trying to take a preventative approach that you invest in mental health now because we know the consequences further down the path. So I actually don't think Labour are getting the credit that they deserve for holding that line on the fiscal position, as well as saying these are key strategic moves that we're going to make. So the challenges are monumental for any government uh, in the next period. But I would uh, say I think Labour have chosen the um, not popular, but they have chosen the more difficult path of what they need to do. Yeah, Sam, I wanted to come to you on this uh, because Labour, like many opposition parties, are getting flack for not having enough policy detail out there. Do you think that is a fair criticism? Do you buy Claire's argument? Uh, and how much detail did you work through on education policy before coming into 2010? How does it compare with your experience? Um, I actually don't think opposition parties need to work up that much detailed policy. I think Labour have worked up more detailed policy than most opposition parties have done in the past. It's very difficult to work up good policy in opposition because you don't have the resources to do it. You've got, you, know, you don't have the civil service and you've, and you've not got... Um, you know, you're usually, usually there's one or two people working on every, every policy area and, and many of them will not be particularly well paid or that experienced. So it's hard to do... Uh, to do it to do it well. I think what's missing is the directional narrative. It's it's less we're going to spend a billion here, a billion there, and more we understand that this is going to require investment. We understand the nature of the problem. And when I hear uh, Labour shadow cabinet ministers saying we need reform, not investment, or reform, not money, it, it does my head in. You know, as if they're, they're they're not separate things. You cannot do any reform without spending money. So I think it's about the narrative that they're pitching, and that that and and how that is going to cause them uh, a problem. Uh, either after the election, they're going to have to stick to it and keep going, and it's going to they're going to find it very difficult to fix anything without. Um, 
taking another look at the kind of financial picture, or they're going to have to flip pretty quickly, and then that sort of raises issues of, sort of trust and, and how voters will, will, will react to that. So um, I, I kind of, of course, I understand the politics of it, but uh, I, I, I worry about the narrative that they're, that they're sort of setting out at the moment, sort of talking about very high tax burdens when they may very well find themselves in a position where they need to uh, raise taxes and then their language just gets um, thrown back at them. In terms of my own experience, we were, I think, quite unusual in the education team in 2010 that we developed a lot of the plans in advance. It did mean that we were able to move very quickly uh, in, in 2010. We, I think we'd, we had the first bill in 2010. Um, uh, but I think that, was, that is quite abnormal, and it wasn't true for most teams, even within that government. I think the one big lesson I'd say from that transition is you, you can't just think about pol policy. It's actually more important to think about how you actually want government to work. I would say that, being an institute for government. But, 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 but I think they, they made a bit of a mess of how they set up number 10, for instance, which they then had to spend a lot of time on doing. And that meant it was harder for them to, to, to move at the kind of pace that they wanted to move. So I'd like Labour to be thinking quite a lot about how government works setting a narrative, not worrying too much about the detail. Great. I'm going to come to questions in the floor just after I ask Giles one last question, which is to try and help us end at least this bit of the discussion on a note of optimism. Uh, are there any things you're looking at forward, looking forward to at this year and think things could improve? What yeah. are the signs of success? I mean, I mean uh, yeah, and I think this is an important angle to come at. We're still a potentially great economy. We're still blessed with a lot of really great natural advantages. We have fantastic world-leading service sectors. We're within one of the cities that's one of sort of modern miracles of the world economy. And that shows that there's nothing wrong with our culture, our laws, our tax levels, the basic things that we can do quite well. We can do really, really well. And there's no, and we, we've had a long period. You can have two versions of the last sort of 20 years. One is a series of unfortunate events sort of knocked us off a better path. And another one is we were in a fool's paradise and actually we got our comeuppance after sort of living high on the hog and eating our seed corn. I'm actually more prone to the first one. That actually, if you look at how the economy is doing, despite the things that have happened in the last five or six years, Brexit, the pandemic, the energy crisis, a very, very inconstant government, the potential to do so much better is amazing. And I think, as for this year in particular, we're at that point in an interest rate cycle that we haven't seen for a very long time where it looks like it's coming down, which m might sort of unleash all sorts of stuff. So there's every reason to think that 2024 might be the beginning of a better than, a better than expected period, like the, the late 90s were. So yeah, absolutely every reason for optimism. Fine. Point of optimism before we go to the floor. Oh. So, <laughs> so if you could raise your hand if you've got questions, I'll try and take two or three at a time. And if you're next door, please do stick your head round the door and I will try and alternate questions from the floor with questions from online. First question. Second question. Hi, uh, Chris Morris from Full Fact. Um, Anita mentioned uh, the outbreak of cakeism in the last few years. And I guess the kind of original masterpiece of that genre was Brexit, uh, an issue on which Keir Starmer has been neither brave nor bold. Uh, Sadiq Khan's been given a bit of free reign to go out and talk about it occasionally. Um, you can understand the political reasons why the leader of the opposition in current circumstances doesn't want to talk about it. But if you're talking about hard choices, when do you think he will? Next question over here. Any more questions? One at the back. Robert Hazel from the Constitution Unit at UCL. Anita characterised uh, Keir Starmer's pitch uh, as being 
just being a bit more competent than the Tories. I hope I don't do you an injustice. I'm going to ask the panel whether he could develop another strand, which is being more honest than the Tories. Polling done by my colleagues in the Constitution Unit uh, suggests that the public value much more highly than delivery issues or values like honesty and integrity in government, things that Rishi Sunak promised when he became Prime Minister, but has perhaps not wholly delivered on. So does the panel think that Starmer could add that arrow to his bow? Great, thank you. And then one final question there. Owen Jackson from Cancer Research UK. Uh, in November last year, we published uh, Longer Better Lives, a manifesto for cancer research and care, which one of the things that identified is the very unusual situation we have in the UK when it comes to research. So, for example, the US government spends five times more per capita than the UK does on cancer research. Germany spends two and a half times more. In the UK, we're incredibly reliant on organisations like CRUK to produce a huge amount of the money that goes into medical research. So... For each of the parties going into the election, what is the right position to take on the role for government in incentivising research, in incentivising innovation, when we know that it drives a huge you know, economic benefit and leads to a huge amount of high-value, good jobs across the country? Great, thank you very much. So we've got a question on cakeism and is it time to talk about the EU again? Uh, could Keir Starmer make his pitch about being more honest and how to incentivise research and innovation? I might start with Giles and just loop along the panel. Okay, very quickly on cakeism, I will defend for a second political cynicism, which is the, um, if you're in opposition and you're trying to take over to become the government, you, you've got to be motivated by the sense that this, there's nothing worse than this government remaining and you've got to do anything you can to get rid of it. That's got to be your driving mission. And you will take any kind of cynical tool at your ha in your hands to, to, do, to achieve that. After all, if you do believe that narrative, you believe that your, your opponents have already used all the cynical tools and then some more to get into this position. So if one of theirs is to be not fully frank with people about Europe and they think there's a 10% chance that getting, reawaking that ghost is going to lead to a disaster like 2019, then I understand their motivation. I do hope that when they get in, they plan a moment where they turn around and say to people, hands up who really wants regulatory divergence? Explains that in English. And, and, and get from the voters the consent to start putting in place some sensible, I don't know, Swiss-style mechanisms. But boy, do I understand the way they feel, because they've dropped the Ming vase a number of times over the years, the Labour government, the Labour Party, in trying to get into government. And I think if they want to eliminate all possibility of that, then that's what an opposition should do. Uh, just on the cancer research thing, th that's a very convincing pitch, and I agree with you there, but not, not wishing to impersonate the Treasury Special Advisor I never was. I don't know where you would put it in the queue behind NHS Capital, NHS Admin, getting the local authorities solvent again, fixing the railways, dealing with the student loan system. There is such a long list of difficult allocation decisions that the next government needs to take, and they will be presented by a constant list of these that will pay for themselves because they're great internal rates of return. Having just published a report on the Treasury and its occasional mean-spiritedness, I do have some sympathy for the dilemma they're in. There's, there's always a court and there's, it's only a pint pot, so I do wish you the best of luck in your endeavour. <laughs> <laughs> Anita. Oh. Um, a very, very on-brand political answer there, um, on, with best of luck. Um, I actually think these three questions are very linked. Um, so Brexit, honesty, and research. 
Um, and I'm struck by going back to, let's go back to Keir Starmer. Um, so Claire mentioned that she thinks that one of the reasons why Labour sort of has, is paying some kind of political price is the fact they haven't promised motherhood and apple pie and everything that anyone could want. I do also think there is an element of this, and we see this a lot in Portland when we do our research, about Keir Starmer himself. And it's not similar, actually, to some of the other opposition leaders on the Labour Party in recent years, in that he doesn't actually have a lot of definition. A lot of the public don't really know who he is. And I think that's actually a problem. Um, and, and, and he has sort of nine months in which people have to sort of look at him, not really know who he is, and be okay with it. And there is, when it comes to questions of Brexit and questions of honesty and questions of how you deliver um, manifest growth, there isn't a sense that he has any priorities. Um, and I think what's interesting about this is that you have a lot of people who will be coming in, if, if Labour is successful, in an election, who have never been MPs before. A lot of the candidates are from local government, public sector backgrounds. Are they going to wear spending cuts? Like, do you have a majority that you can deliver that? Um, and when we talk about the tough choices that are required to deliver growth, maybe it's about Brexit and trade deals, maybe it's about investing in innovation, is he really clear about what he would do as a politician. I've always felt, and, and David Liddington, uh, de facto Deputy Prime Minister, is in the room with me, I worked for him. During the Brexit years, Keir Starmer never felt that political. Oddly, it's an odd thing to say, but behind the scenes, I don't think he was particularly political. He's clearly gone on a journey, but is it clearly defined now? He's quite new to politics. Do we know who he is as a politician? Do we know what kind of Prime Minister he wants to be beyond a good one? And I'm not sure that's a good enough point of view to see you through what's going to be a difficult period for the country where there is potential, I agree with you, Giles, but still a lot of like elephant traps on the ground that, that, that the party or the country could fall into. Claire, what do you think? Is that enough? And what do you think about the EU and uh, research and innovation question? Yeah, I and mean, I think um, on the point of sort of competence, honesty, I mean, these are, we, we say these things like they don't matter, like they really, really matter. And actually at this point, I would take an honest, competent uh, government. And I hope that uh, Labour is able to convince the country that, that um, it's got a vision for the country and it, and it will deliver for them. But I, I don't think we should overlook how people felt when they knew that they'd been lied to around the party gate, um, uh, the party gate fiasco. And in terms of honesty and bravery, remember Starmer stood up and said he would resign as party leader if he was fined. He said he would resign. I mean, that was a huge thing for, to do. And you didn't know, we didn't know, and I was part of the team at that point, what the outcome of that was going to be. Meanwhile, you had a number 10 that was getting fined all over the place and didn't, uh, and didn't resign. In the end, it, it did for them. But I think, actually, the country want to see a bit of uh, respect for them. I think they want to see honesty. I think they want to see integrity. And, and Starmer said, look, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm not going to get everything right, but I'm not going to lie to you. And I'm not going to break the law. And I think there's something to be said for that. And I hope we see uh, some of that reversion to rule of law, to standards. I think that stuff matters. Um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of truth and honesty, I think actually a, it was a hard thing to do it would have been easy for Starmer to turn around and uh, go back into Remain-type territory. But actually, once the deal, once it, once it had gone through Parliament, once we were out of that period, actually, I think it was pretty tough for the Labour leadership to be able to, given that they all voted Remain, they wanted to remain in the, in, in the European Union, they lost that referendum, to say, we accept that result and we're going to have to make this work. And 
there is a version that uh, Remainers want to see, which is a, a, a doubling down on why people were wrong to vote. And I think that Labour took the decision that we needed to move past that as a country. So that, to me, isn't about not telling the truth. I think that's about saying we have to be pragmatic now that now this has happened. It is not the outcome uh, lots of us wanted, but you have to make the best of it working. In terms of the question about research, I think it is incredibly important and it goes to the core of Labour's first mission around how you achieve economic growth across the country. And that across the country is really important. And I think it's a step change on how we've seen economic growth over the last 20 or 30 years. It's really about having a plan for every place. And uh, one of the uh, roles is the roles that universities have with industries, which they are doing anyway in lots of parts of the United Kingdom, but they're not necessarily doing it as part of a strategic plan where government can make those investments. So I think it's incredibly important. I think the pandemic showed, and it also showed to the Labour team and to government, what can happen when you bring t people together across the private sector, public sector, across our universities and research uh, institutes and drive when you've got, a, you've got a crisis situation, they're modelling, well, how could we do this as part of the real-time business of government? And I think that potentially could be quite, quite exciting. So, yes, it, it, there will be some decisions, obviously, centrally, but I think devolution and the uh, unleashing of economic potential in every place is, um, should be a huge uh, focus of our research and development. I'll do some quick ones so we can get some more questions in. Yep, I've got um, a few lined up here. Yeah. Uh, Starmer will start talking about Brexit at the moment when his MPs get disaffected enough to make him talk about Brexit. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, haven't, I haven't fully gone through everyone yet, but I haven't found a single Labour candidate who didn't vote for Campaign for Remain. Uh, and at some point that will tell. I just don't know we'll at what point during the next Parliament it will tell, but it will. Um, uh, on, on honesty... I think it's a terrible idea for politicians to talk about how honest they are and a very good idea for them to be honest. Um, and that's why I worry about the narrative uh, setting at the moment and the fact that it probably will have to switch quite hard after the election. Uh, because I think that, that I think the, the latest Ipsos data, estate agents are now three times more trusted than politicians, which should really give people cause for concern. Um, so uh, yeah, it's lower than it's ever been and I think no one's going to assume honesty at the moment, so you've got to really demonstrate it before anyone's going to believe it. Uh, and then on, on, on the research, I'd even go further than Giles. You know, I, I completely understand your argument, but I've been trying to replicate the, what, the, what the 2025 spending review is going to feel like, and it's going to feel horrendous. And you start looking down all the departments, and everyone, what can we cut in every department? It's just bare. The cupboard is bare, every department. In fact, they're all going to be asking for a lot more money. And so you get to this science budget, and you think, well, that looks juicy. There's a lot of money there. That's, you know, politically speaking, at least, the pe people will accept that being cut, even if it would be a terrible idea in policy terms. So I think defending what you have is going to be, is going to be hard enough uh, without, without winning new money. But, you know, again, like, like Giles, I sort of understand the, the argument. So I've got some questions from Slido. Actually, some of them are probably more directed at individuals, so I'm just going to fire them at you, if that's OK. Um, I've got a question from John Davis to you, Sam, which is, if schools is one of the only areas that showed improvement in today's charts, and you say that education was one of the areas that had unusually well-developed plans in 2010, are there any lessons for sort of how the benefits of opposition prep for policy in government? Should we see a connection between those things about how much thinking had been done on schools and the progress that was then made? Yeah, I mean, definitely. 
part of the, it's quite hard to answer that question because we don't know what's caused the improvement because we have mm -hmm. very bad sort of evaluations of policy uh, in this country. Um, but you know, looking at the data we do have from international comparative tests, you'd say you know, math seems to be an area where we're, we're doing better, um, particularly probably if there is going to be a policy driver of that, it was mass curriculum changes in, um, in, in 2012. Um, and, and you know that was very driven by Nick Gibb, who'd been working on education policy in opposition for five years, was a very unusual shadow minister and minister in being absolutely fascinated and obsessed with one issue and only wanting to work on that one issue. Um, and you know, there are plenty of things you can say, you can criticize about his approach, but that, uh, that obsession and that focus meant, meant that he had a real grip on that curriculum review and uh, and the associated changes to assessment that followed. If there is a policy change that's led to this improvement, it was that. So yes, I think certainly it doesn't always follow. I mean, we spent a lot of time on academies uh, reform, and I don't think that's made anything worse. It may have made things marginally better, but there's no not particularly strong evidence for that. Um, but but yes, I mean logically it must do. If you think something about something more, you're more likely to do a good job on it. Um, Anita, a question for you from Alistair Online, which is, do you think Sunak will be leader at the general election? If the budget doesn't go down well and the Tories lose badly at local elections, there's fighting happening on Rwanda, how safe is he? How much of a risk is there to his position, do you think? I actually don't think there's a huge risk to his position. Um, not, not just because of the sort of um, the stuff you read in the papers about the fatalism that has settled in um, amongst uh, Conservative backbenchers, but actually because I think what we've seen is there are some groups within the party that have a lot of bark, but not quite so much bite. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that ultimately people know that Sunak is the best op of, uh, available option to them and that a degree of certainty is absolutely critical. Um, and so I don't think that he's actually at risk in his position. And please pay this back to me um, yeah. in a, in a <laughs> yeah, something yeah, yeah, crazy yeah. happens. We'll snip it. It will be on the uh, IFG Twitter feed. Um, uh, Claire, John has asked, if Labour win, they're going to inherit a series of crises in public services, prisons, NHS waiting lists, local government. Can they realistically hope to implement their own agenda, or are we just going to end up in another five years of infighting just with people wearing different coloured rosettes? <laughs> um, I mean, I think like that challenge is real. Like, there's just no point pretending that that isn't going to be the biggest thing that Labour face. In we've heard about the scale of the problems. Every incoming new minister, if there is a, a, a change of government to, to Labour, will have a list as long as your arm of all the things they need. I mean, we, just, we were just hearing about local government this morning. A lot of those things are also politically not very popular, but like massively, massively essential to people's um, uh, experience of government and of public services. So there is just no point pretending that that's not going to be extremely difficult. I think that Labour are doing the best job that they can to be able to message clearly to the electorate and to their own side that they are just not going to be able to meet an endless list of demands or not even a very big list of demands. They're going to have to be really systematic about what are the things that they can do in year one that will start to deliver the growth that will then allow them to do uh, things further, further down that list. But I think it's no point pretending. And I, I think local government finance, I think, I think George Gould was right this morning, I think it is perilous. And I think that is going to present almost as an emergency uh, in, in terms of the, the Treasury team, if it's, if it's not already. Um, so I think it is going to be difficult. I think it's, it's partly about holding that line and what are the things that you would do first uh, uh, to enable the growth to come later. 
And then lastly, Giles, to you. Is anyone going to be brave enough to voice the cost of the net zero transition to individuals and their lives? Uh, are we going to have to keep pretending it's not going to cost a lot? Well, um, I don't think anyone's going to put it that way. Well, the people attacking <laughs> it, the people attacking it will put it that way, say, this is a terrible thing, we can't afford to do it. And then other people are going to point at the news and say, have you seen all the things being burned and flooded? And what is the alternative? We need to be getting on with this. I know the Labour narrative is very much that since we're doing this, we can turn this into a really powerful growth story. And as a as a, um, an exercise in political communication, I think that's a pretty decent idea. But I agree with you, it is going to be pretty expensive. It's going to be, I mean, the vast bulk of that investment number that I mentioned earlier is going to be coming in sort of climate mitigation and changing the nature of our energy system and our industry and our housing stock and our agriculture. So yet, yeah, it's going to be very, very expensive. But they have to present this as a huge opportunity. We've gone through huge transitions before as a country. Uh, you know, we built out a whole motorway system. We built like dozens of nuclear power stations. We moved from horses to cars. We managed to change the country before without it just feeling absolutely impossible. Mm. So I, I don't think putting it just in terms of the cost or not looking at the world we're moving towards is the right way to do it. It's a better world we go towards when we do this. And that's the message people should be projecting. Great. We've got only a few minutes left, but there's probably time for a couple of questions from the floor. We'll take one from the front, one from the gentleman at the back, and one from the lady by the door. If we have more time, we'll come back to the others with their hands up. Mm -hmm. Andrew Carner, a governor here at the Institute. Um, the panel have been saying a lot of things about honesty, about uh, cynicism, about politics, and so on. What ideas, or what suggestions do you have for how this election campaign, which we're we've really, in effect, entering now, how could it be conducted better over the next nine months so that public belief in our democracy is reinforced? Um, and w in particular, what can the media do? What sort of uh, public debate should there be? Debate between party leaders? Are there any, is there any uh, control on uh, expenditure, on donations, on the financing which would help? In other words, how do we re-establish a certain confidence in our democracy, you only have to look across the Atlantic to see that there is a real danger uh, uh, for our dem democratic system. Thank you. Gentleman on the final row. Hello, Jonathan Slater, ex-permanent uh, secretary, sitting next to a colleague for the cabinet office, which reminds me my first time at the IFG was when I was in the cabinet office, uh, coming here, uh, listening to ex-permanent secretaries saying, and thinking, get off the stage, it's our turn now. Anyway, my question, uh, I should have thought I had 20 years. My question is a question, I think, for Sam. Your anger that the Labour Party isn't being honest, I think I've got that right, is the sort of honesty you want, given how high the tax burden is and how poor the public estate, as you said, is, is the honesty you want for him to just say, we're not really going to be able to make things better very much, or, or what? I'm not quite sure what is the honesty you're seeking. Thank you. And then the lady by the door. Thank you. I think my reflection's picking up on, on looking over the pond, as, as we describe it, and reading stuff about the primaries at the moment in, in America and flyover communities, as they're called here, or maybe we could say red wall um, areas here. Um, fuel is 
coming up is the huge issue that is leading to the support for Trump currently in America, where people are saying that that is why we're going to vote. We're going to vote in our flyover communities. It's, it's about fuel. Do the panel think there is an issue that could be the issue that tips red wall communities in this coming election? Okay, great. So I'm going to start with you, Sam, seeing as there was a question directly to you on what honesty you want, and then uh, one prediction for what could be the defining issue and one note of optimism for how could we improve the debate, and we'll go from left to right. Um, what honesty do I want from them? I, I want them to, and I, I definitely don't want them to say that nothing can be fixed, because I don't think that's true. I think things can, I mean, obviously it's going to take time and there's a hell of a lot of problems all at once, but things can certainly get better, uh, and they should, they should be willing to say that. Um, the, the honesty is about explaining why we've got here and why we're in, uh, in this mess. It's, not, it, it's partly because we haven't had enough growth, which is what they're talking about, but it's not just because we haven't had enough growth, it's because also we've taken a, uh, a very um, inadequate approach to thinking about public the way we fund and manage the public sector. Uh, you know, you, I've done a lot of work in the last year on, on the NHS. Uh, there is a, the NHS was getting worse before, before COVID. The reason the NHS was getting worse before COVID was in large part because we had repeatedly, uh, through short-term decision-making, pulled money away from capital investment and put it into, um, and put it into managing acute short-term crises. Now, that is an honest uh, explanation of why the NHS is in the, in, in, in the mess. It leads you to a, to a solution. We're going to have to move some money into capital investment. That's going to take some time, et cetera, et cetera. But at the moment, you're just, say, you're just hearing, well, we need to reform, not spend money. And that's not honest. That's not anything. That's not an argument at all. So uh, I think the, it, it's about a, a, a really tight diagnosis of why we are where we are and the kinds of things that are going to need to change without promising the earth all at once because that's not uh, realistic uh, either. Um, what were the other questions? I got the other questions were what could be the sort of surprise defining issue of the election uh, and what are some of the ways we could hope to improve the debate and improve confidence in our own democracy through the campaign that will follow? Oh yeah, on the last one, no chance. We're not going to have a good election campaign. It's going to be absolutely horrendous. Uh, I think you know, we have to look longer term if we're, we're thinking about improving our... And it comes down to institution and institutional reform. And I have a book coming out in September on that very issue, um, which I will not try and summarise now. Um, uh, what could be the big... I think some, something... There are so many public services are so on the edge that any one of them, something really dramatically bad could happen very quickly. You could get some massive scandal about children's homes. You could have a school literally collapsing. Something like that could trigger a... You know, in the way that, that during 2017 the terrorist attacks triggered a debate about police funding, something like that could trigger a kind of how are we in austerity again type debate. I thought it was a stretch to get from you a note of optimism. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't do optimism. No. Claire. Um, I'll start with pessimism and I'll do a bit of optimism. I, I agree. I think this campaign, I think expecting this campaign to be positive, I think we're not going to see that. I think we've already seen, and, and I feel this as, you know, as a Labour supporter who worked for... Starman would defend him. I mean, the attacks that are already coming on him personally, what we're starting to see in the right-wing media, are an absolute direct flow through from what Johnson tried to do to him in the House that his own team resigned over uh, in terms of the baseness that we're going to go to. So I'm, I feel that we are asking a lot in a way in a year which I don't think we're going to see uh, anything particularly pretty uh, during the campaign. Um, and therefore, it's really important, this question about, well, how can we improve democracy and trust at the same time, when I think 
the, the possibility is that that will just repel lots and lots of voters. Um, I think if we look at what's happening in the states, a lot of what people are saying is, is the overall narrative is about, you know, Biden and his age and how can it be Trump again? But actually underneath that, it really is people just not feeling better off on the economy. Um, Progressive Policy Institute, which is the US uh, think tank I work for, I did an extensive poll of working class Americans who, who basically said that it was out of the last 40 years, Trump was the president who's done most for people on the economy, 44% compared to Biden on 12%. I mean, the idea that the Democrats can win when they're not winning working America in that way, um, I think is, is really uh, serious. So I think we have to look at what's happening in the States, but in terms of our own democracy, it's that clear, the clear piece of essentially people want you to tell you, to tell you what they're gonna do and do it. And, they, and that is where trust fundamentally has broken down. So I think realistic, credible, thought-through promises are actually deliverable and that there is a plan for doing so, I think really, is really important. I think having some honesty about the limits of government, which I think in a sense the missions are partly saying actually we need to come together, industry, the devolved governments, metro mayors, so on and so forth, in pursuit of these really big overarching long-term goals. Um, I think we have to think about our institutions, interesting colleague from Fulfact, because actually I think institutions play an enormously important role. Um, and I think the BBC, I thought the attack on it yesterday uh, was a signifier of more to come in that domain. Actually, the BBC is where most of us go to to work out, you know, can we see the wood for the trees? So I think us defending uh, some of those institutions, of course, they should be accountable. But I think having those um, independent sources, I've mentioned before about public involvement. I think it is actually important that we start to have a different type of conversation with the public uh, and don't just make solutions in, um, uh, in isolation. And I think, finally, I think there's something that is for all of us to take away around who we are talking to and whose truth is it, because I think actually when we're coming up with solutions, it's really important that we're not just doing that in, in the sort of as much as I like the experts bubble, that we are actually doing it in a way that goes with the grain uh, of pe the way people uh, live their lives. Because there are so many people who felt completely excluded and shut out from politics. And frankly, if we just serve up to them another dose of it, but it's a centre-left version, that is not going to work for people. They're not going to feel trusted. So I think we as institutions need to be much more geographically dispersed, much more equal in the way that we do things, more inclusive and more participatory. And that is something for political parties, but also for uh, institutions like IFG and others too. Thank you, Claire. Anita, note of optimism thing, note of optimism for how to restore confidence in our democracy, possible surprise issue for the campaign. Yes, um, I think that the, with the Sunak and Starmer have quite similar qualities. They are both fairly kind of solid, fairly new politicians who I think try their hardest to do the right thing. And weirdly, I think that's going to translate into a not very pleasant election campaign because they both have incentives to um, fight very personal campaigns. And I think there is a risk in in that dynamic that actually everything gets even more kind of exaggerated as you look for these moments of differentiation. So I think that oddly, even though I think both of them have um, characteristics, and I think St um, Sunak is in his heart a very sensible politician, and I think Starmer is also a very sensible politician who both could lead parties very well, I'm not sure that's going to translate into an election campaign that ends up being edifying and policy, you know, about policy and about the tough questions the country faces. Um, I did just want to respond very briefly. I don't have a lot of time. Um, 
on the question around kind of flyover states and, and red wall. I think with this red wall analysis, you know, it was always supposed to help us understand a particular demographic of people who probably should always, when you look at the demographics of those particular seats, have voted Conservative but actually didn't. Um, and we're kind of getting very preoccupied in that. And it's kind of recency bias, right? The idea that Conservatives actually won all these seats. It's not the majority of the Conservatives vote. And I think that one of the things that we should look out for and one of the things that journalism, I think, can bring to the table to give us a better conversation is kind of avoiding those traps of repetition and recency that mean you only talk about one particular type of voter. And I think that's really hurt American politics as well, because there are, we have a lot of things in common um, as a country, and those common denominators are not sort of where we think they are. And we think the, all the electorate somehow is sort of this idea of a red wall voter, by the way, which I don't think is quite what red wall voters are anyway, but they don't define the entire election. Uh, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be very quick. Um, in terms of the issue that I'm worried might ambush the general election, I'm worried that national security might, something can happen that we can't control. And also, I think conservative strategists might sensibly think that Labour's basically united on every issue. You can think of lots of divisions along all sorts of lines in the Conservative Party on internationalism, social liberalism, even on tax cutting and so forth. Labour, national security is potentially their only Achilles heel and I'm worried they might try and exploit something along those lines if, if the situation arises. I hope it doesn't. Um, but in terms of um, improving the quality of the public debate, I would love it if... I'm not thinking there was a golden age when we were all civil to each other. I think anyone who's read political history knows that elections were always pretty nasty. Um, but I think the, the, the way in which our politicians are interrogated has become too full of, like, snapshot gotchas. I mean, you see it all the, way, all the time on Twitter. No matter what you know about the person who's being interviewed there, it's the time they forget the price of milk or can't remember what there was in their briefing. And that's suddenly their definition. And whereas the really great examples, I was reminded of two recently. One... There was that fantastic Brian Walden interview with Margaret Thatcher towards the end. We interviewed about Lawson's re resignation. And it was a very hard-hitting interview, but it was civil. It was really long form. It was a real opportunity to really understand the issue. And Nick Robinson's interviews with politicians, just them stretching out a little bit more and being a bit more decent. And you really get to know them. I really remember enjoying one with Gillian Keegan. It wasn't full of gotchas. But it was a real opportunity to get to know Gillian Keegan. And I, I wish there was more like that and less sort of two-minute videos on Twitter where the person gets caught out forgetting where Kigali is or whatever it is. So I think the media has a part to play there. It might not be a, a sort of a money-making idea, but we could, we could do with a little bit longer. Stuff like this. Yeah, fine. More of these things. That's an excellent note to end on. All that's left to do is to thank our sponsors, Grant Thornton and the excellent panel. So if you could give me a big round of applause for those, that'd be great.